Welcome to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast, part of the Awareness to Action podcast network. I'm TJ Daw, and this season my co-host Mario Sikora and I will be exploring the Enneagram through the lens of specific directors whose work demonstrates themes related to the nine Enneagram types and three instinctual biases. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. In the meantime, make some popcorn, sit back, and enjoy the show. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast. I'm Mario Sakura, as always, with my co-host, TJ Dahl, in this season. TJ, how are you today? I'm very well, thanks. How are you? Super. So, really, really excited for today's episode. Number one, we're going to be talking about Enneagram Type 8 and the director, Michael Mann, one of my favorites. But... You know, TJ, I couldn't help but thinking with today's podcast uh, about thinking about how what it was like to know that both Al Pacino and Robert De Niro were going to be acting in the same movie, in the movie Heat. And today we have something similar. Why don't you tell everybody what we have in store for today? Yeah, we have the Robert De Niro and Al Pacino of Danny Graham, Tom Condon and Russ Hudson. That's right. They're going to be coming in to weigh in on these big, mighty forces, the great antagonist and great protagonist of the Enneagram, Tom and Russ. Thanks for being with us. Uh, I want to be. I want to well, be De Niro. Yeah, I figured. I figured that would be the case. <laughs> I will gracefully yield. Well, I, yeah, yeah. Well, but you know, again, De Niro does die at the end of the movie. Uh, That's true. But, you know, uh, we again have with us uh, Tom Condon and Russ Hudson together on the Enneagram in a Movie podcast for the first time, both friends of the show and uh, frequent guests on the show. So it's really super to have you guys. Um, you know, these two need no introduction, two of the major Enneagram teachers uh, uh, working today, two of the biggest influencers in the Enneagram world, uh, both of whom I have a lot of admiration for, and I am proud to call them both teachers of mine and friends. So welcome, guys. It's great to have you here. Thank you, Mario. Great. Always great to be here. Yep. Thanks. All right. Let's see, John, just before I forget, people can find more information about you. Tom, uh, what is your website? Please share with everybody. Uh, www.thechangeworks, all one word, dot com. The Changeworks. The change great. Thanks. And Russ, you're at RussHudson.com, right? That's right. Real easy. www.RussHudson.com. Great. So let's get right to this. So in this season, we have been focusing on four movies for each director's. We're going to kind of cut that down to two movies to focus on, although I'm sure we'll be mentioning a lot of Michael Mann's work as we go on. I, I got to say, Michael Mann is one of my favorite directors. And these two movies we're going to talk about, 1981's Thief, with James Kahn and 1995's Heat with Robert De Niro and Al Pacino, or Al Pacino and Robert De Niro, depending on who's telling the story, are two of my favorite movies. Uh, Michael Mann, I, you know, for me, when his movies hit, they're really, really good, but some of them are really, really bad, in my view. I'm curious from you guys, your thoughts on Michael Mann in general as a director. TJ, I'm going to start with you and then go to uh, Russ and Tom 
Yeah, the big thing that I got out of watching these two movies and watching some of his other movies is borrowing a phrase from a theater history professor of mine that I studied under who was describing the difference between Aeschylus and Euripides in ancient Greece theater, said Euripides was more like Bach, intricate, music, complicated, whereas Aeschylus was Beethoven, big bow-wow stuff. Michael Mann is big bow-wow stuff. He's Beethoven, he's Wagner. His movies seem really operatic to me. Larger than life. Music is pretty much constant in the movies, whether it's a known song or underscoring. And big, powerful, intense stuff. Powerful protagonists going up against powerful antagonists. It's a clash of the titans. Seems to be a consistent theme and motif in his movies. Absolutely. Uh, Russ, Tom, thoughts on Michael Mann in general? I'm not sure what his Enneagram style is, actually, having watched several interviews with him. But what I would say about him is that he thinks like an artist. And not, I don't mean in the Enneagram cliche sense, but he's about procedure and character and is very, very thoughtful and kind of interesting. He's not funny, uh, which is why he hasn't done any comedies. And... uh, at the same time, he was a—he seemed like a straight-up guy. They say sometimes that he can be aggressive on set, so maybe that's his eightness emerging. But I see patterns in the movies. I've seen a lot of them now, and we certainly—the two films we're focusing on today, *Thief* and *Heat*, are pretty eight-ish. But he's got a lot of five in some of the other films, and he's got a lot of three in some of the other films. So, but he's got real style and a real grasp of character. And both of those things are what he talks about. Yeah. Go ahead, Russ. Yeah, I'll just uh, pick up from what you were just saying, Tom. Uh, You know, I think in people who pay attention to movies and so forth often describe him as a stylist. And I I see that's true. There's a look, there's a certain kind of color saturation. There's a certain way that he lights things. There's definitely a look to a Michael Mann movie. However, for me, that's not the main thing about his movies. He is a plot guy. He loves a good plot. And more than a lot of directors, He's very careful to make you able to follow along with the plot, even if there are some complexities going on. So I find him very definite about his plot points and how the story moves forward. He's also a master of pacing. I really noticed that when you compare him with a lot of contemporary action directors, he, he's known for his action films, but you never get kind of punch drunk from over kinetic action where you can't even tell what's going on. You know what's going on in a Michael Mann movie. Everything is very clear. And yeah, he he clearly knows how to work with actors because he seems to get really good performances out of them. But I would say because he's a plot guy, his good movies are the movies that had good material to work from in the beginning. And when he didn't have such promising material, his directorial uh, gifts couldn't compensate for that since he's such a plot guy. So it's interesting to me that Michael Mann, um, when you watch interviews with him, you know, he started out as a writer. He was an English 
major in college and then mm -hmm. um he went to the movies and saw dr strange love uh. and said this is what i want to do with my life right this is this is it and he decided then he was going to go to film school and he in an interview i saw he said you know i had no visual sense up to that point i just you know i was not a visual thinker i didn't have any uh, experience with photography filmmaking anything like that uh, he was a literature guy and uh, so that speaks to the idea of being plot driven. And also, he certainly learned visual style. I mean, because he is one of the, you know, the, has a signature look, a signature way of filming. You can tell a Michael Mann movie when you're watching it. And this is a co ongoing conversation we've had through this season with some directors you look at it visually and it could be anybody directing it, right? Clint Eastwood is that way. Um, whereas others, uh, David Fincher, for example, is very distinct. Uh, Wes Anderson, very distinct. I would put Michael Mann closer to that as you know you're watching a Michael Mann movie when you're flipping around on TV and land on one, right? Uh, you can tell without even knowing who and what it is. As far as his Enneagram type, you, you know, again, hard to say. We don't, you know, really know these uh, people's Enneagram types uh, uh, for the most part. Uh, our goal is to point out themes in the work that illustrate the Enneagram type. And certainly with these two movies and with a number of the others, uh, the, the theme of Enneagram type eight is, um, is there. I don't know that there's any more type eight movie than Thief. Right. Um, it would be really, really hard to find one. And uh, so uh, we're going to talk about that. But before we go further with that, TJ, why don't you introduce us into what we're talking about when we talk about type eight? And then Tom and Russ, I'm going to ask you guys to also, you know, give your thoughts on type eight. So go ahead, TJ. So, yeah, type eight is striving to feel powerful. So an eight at the average level is going to be very direct, straight talking, no patience for bullshit probably have a really salty sense of humor. It's a solid, tough, practical, action-oriented. They like to be in charge. Not unusual to find an eight at the head of an institution or starting their own business or at the head of a family or a group of friends. A maladaptive eight is loud, intense, using more energy than they need to, looking for intense things to stimulate them and getting diminishing returns on that stimulation. They push themselves really hard, they push boundaries, they can control people and inadvertently push people away by being controlling. If you go further down, they can become violent and criminal, convinced of their invulnerability. They might treat others and themselves as objects and there's a certain deadness inside. When an eight's been doing their work, they have a sense of honor. Their word is their bond, they're empowering. They can make excellent mentors and protector figures. They are merciful, kind, generous, open-hearted, tender, letting themselves be touched by the world. And they still have the energy and the power and the strength that they had before. And it's incredibly grounded. They're able to refresh themselves in healthful ways, and they can devote themselves to something bigger than their own agenda. And in doing so, they paradoxically become more powerful than they had ever been before. Great. Thanks, TJ. Tom, why, why don't you add, what, what else would you say about eights? And then I'll ask Russ to comment as well. Well, that's a pretty good summary of the high side and the low side. In the films we're going to see, we see both, I think. And then also, 
the the defensive quality of it, I always key into like the need to be strong is in opposition to vulnerability and the possibility of being weak. That's pretty much how I see Enneagram styles often. And so the need to be strong is both kind of intrinsic, but also defensive, potentially, especially when they're on the low side, you know, kind of coming out of a view of the world in which they have a war in their head. Or if you listen to their metaphor, sometimes you can hear that. And also, if it's not a war, it's a severe natural environment, like the jungle, life is a jungle, or it's a dog-eat-dog kind of world, that, that sort of thing. And there's an implied worldview that's behind it that the person is seeing themselves in relation to. In other words, if I'm, if I'm in the jungle, I want to be the top apex predator. You know, I want to be, I want to prevail. I want to be the one on top. If I'm in a war in my head, then I want to be, I want to be uh, victorious. I want to come out on top. Those sorts of things. I, I think do show up in the films too. Thanks, Tom. Russ. Well, you guys have you know brought a lot of good points. I would just emphasize certain things, and they're themes that we're going to talk about that are in these films. You'd be hard pressed to find a type that is more committed to independence, not depending on people. Depending on people is scary, and that's a theme you'll see in Thief. It's a theme you'll see in Heat, where the competent got my act together. I know how this work. A person has to deal with people who are a little shaky in various ways. That independence relates also to what you were saying, Tom, about the vulnerability. Because if you love someone, if you have a heart connection with someone, it creates an inner conflict and a sense of risk about that independence. And, you know, eights being human beings love people and want to have connection, want to have strong relationships. At the same time, there's this like, is this going to take away my ability to take care of what I got to take care of? So there's a, a kind of an interesting dynamic there. I, I think of the types more and more in terms of dynamics rather than just traits. Another element of it is um, honor, which you did mention, TJ. What's interesting is I think at whatever level of functioning an eight might find him or herself. The issue of honor is always central. Now, <laughs> that eight's code of honor might be different <laughs> than yours and mine. And one of the interesting studies that Michael Mann goes into in pretty much all of his movies is about people's personal code of honor and how the vicissitudes of their life impact that and make some things more difficult, something's easier, or what? when is their code of honor challenged? And we'll see that in both of the films too. But I, I don't think that always gets said enough about eights. All the eights I ever have known, loved, had in my life, that sense of personal code of honor is something that you don't mess with that. <laughs> That's kind of a, a core of how I operate in the world. But again, that code of honor may have very little resemblance to the cultural norm, for example, which can also lead to more of that sense of isolation, independence, and so forth in AIDS. I don't think people always notice how um, on their own AIDS can feel. 
And you certainly get that message across in, in the films we're going to talk about today, too. Yeah. Honor Among Thieves is a little different than, you know, being yes. upright and virtuous. But there, but there is a code of honor amongst thieves. Exactly, there's there are rules, yeah. and you don't break the rules. Or you you can, but there are consequences. One other thing I would say about eights that is sort of psychological, and it's it's in the films a little bit, is the the sense of vulnerability that they're trying to avoid is. Well, in, in in one of the films, it looks to me like an attachment disorder, the De Niro character in Heat. But also, uh, the, there's a numbness also within the low side of it. And we aren't dealing in these films, or Michael Mann isn't dealing in these films with healthy individuals. So we are inevitably going to emphasize the low side of it. But the De Niro character is numb on some level. And the James Conn character is numb. And they both sort of say the same thing, which is as criminals, they need to be able to walk away from any attachments and any, uh, you know, difficulties that might hold them back. They've got to they've got to keep going forward. You know, when I teach the Enneagram, one of the things I did was change the words that we use for the fixation of each type, because I felt that Ichaza's terms were a lot, oftentimes too negative. But if you go to the unhealthy side of the type, they're relevant, and that's true here. I don't think most eights are running around with vengeance on their mind. That's not the main thing. I, I call it objectification is the, the fixation, something all egos do. We turn the world into things. But once you've done that, vengeance becomes possible. And when your emotions are triggered and you're object objectifying, one of the one might argue that the fatal flaw, what undoes Robert De Niro in the end of Heat is his inability to turn away from the path of vengeance. So yeah. that's a relevant thing. Getting even or payback. It's really not getting even, it's payback. Well, it's, a, yeah. it's also punishing someone for making the eight feel vulnerable after the fact when it's too late. So, uh, first of all, great stuff from both of you, and thank you for that. Um, I, I think we should disclose that I am an Enneagram Type 8, so, um, oh, and one of the oh, reasons, no. yeah, right, so you didn't know, so you're, you're all screwed by the end of this. Yeah. Because, no, uh, so, I'm getting out of here. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to get my vengeance in editing of this. That's episode. right, yeah. that's right. <laughs> so, It'll be um, you and TJ. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, so, uh, so um, a couple of things uh, on the vengeance thing. I'll comment on that. For me, the vengeance of the eight is the eight needs to feel like they are on top in some way. And just knowing that I have some way in which I am over top of everybody. I'm taller than this person, I'm stronger than that person, I'm smarter than that person, I'm whatever, right? There's some way in which I can, should I need to, establish my dominance, right? And once that's settled in my head, I can kind of relax. And then the vengeance thing very often comes from losing that sense, right, of, you know, uh, somebody got over on me, 
okay, I've got to get back at them, right? I've got to get back on top. And most of the time, I don't go through life, as Russ said, uh, thinking about vengeance. I do objectify people all the time. You're just objects living in my world and, you know, to, for, to be made use of. The other thing, and I think TJ touched on this, this feeling of deadness inside, right? So, um, you know, almost talks about the essential aspects. Uh, I, I think of them as core qualities. And for me, the core quality is around vitality, this feeling of being alive, this aliveness that becomes stunted in some way, impaired, wounded, damaged, whatever we want to call it. And so eights are walking around with this feeling of deadness inside that often when they're out of touch with it, they're over, they're trying to, they're kind of overcompensating through an aggressiveness and excessiveness and assertiveness into the world. This striving to feel powerful helps me to recapture that, right? So it's a reaction to this feeling of deadness. And as you've all said, this feeling of deadness, this sense of deadness permeates these characters, right? These characters, it's, it's all throughout these movies. The other thing is the relationship to the connecting points for me, right? So the preferred strategy, in my view, is striving to feel powerful for the eight, the capacity to have an impact on the world to make something happen. Now, it leads to this sort of distortion of the strategies at the two connecting points, right? At point two, which is all about connection, as you've all talked about, is connecting comes at a cost. If I am connected to someone, I am vulnerable, right? And I want to avoid that. So, you, the eight connects very discriminately, right? Choosing very carefully who they connect with, and then they objectify those others, right, that they don't want to connect with. There's a really great scene that wasn't in the original theatrical release of Thief, right after the first break-in, where James Conn goes by the lake and sits with that guy fishing, right? And it's this really tender moment that you know, was with this guy who's a, probably a complete stranger, right? This kind of semi-homeless guy almost fishing in the lake. My, I remember my wife saying to me one time, you know, you're the most compassionate guy in the world until you get to know the people. And then you become tougher. And the closer they are to you, the tougher you are on them, right? Which speaks to this thing around, well, that's because if you're close to me, I'm responsible for you. And you create a vulnerability in my life, so you better pull your weight, right, is kind of the mindset. And I'll say one more thing. The connection to point five serves to reinforce the sense of striving to feel powerful by detachment. It's this emotional detachment that allows me to objectify, uh, that allows the eight to objectify, like Russ was saying, and to become cold, aloof, and indifferent, and potentially cruel at times. Okay. So this dynamic of these connecting points is really interesting to me as it plays out in these movies. One of the ways you're talking about being on top, one of the other mm -hmm. ways that I understand it and have heard it from eights is in terms of size. In other words, I need to be big in order to compensate for feeling small, for feeling numb, mm -hmm. for feeling overlooked, for feeling not cared for. I'm on my own in this tough doggy dog world. And also, the connection to two helps with that objectifying that you're talking about, where you, when you're in the pattern of your defenses and you're in the mentality and I call it a trance of your defenses, 
you see people two-dimensionally, except for maybe the ones that you're close to, like you were talking about, Mario. Uh, mm-hmm. But they're caricatures. They're car- uh, sort of like cartoons or sort of like what you see at uh, carnivals, where somebody will draw a cartoon picture of you. Or in wartime, they'll be the enemy will be portrayed as a caricature. Right. And going from 2D to 3D, uh, where you know people stop being that and start being fully rounded human beings is you know one of the steps that that eights often make as they grow and change so there's hope is what Not, you're saying well me. in in most cases yeah <laughs> <laughs> russ were you going to add something there no no i think that I feel like we've got a good uh, intro to the eight here Are you interested in learning more about our approach to the Enneagram? Go to awarenesstoaction.com and check out our certification program. We offer a clear, concise, business-friendly, and science-minded approach while maintaining the depth of traditional approaches to the system. At Awareness to Action International, we're the leading innovators in the theory and pragmatic applications of this system to all aspects of the work environment, including leadership and personal development, team building, diversity and culture, and managing change. However, this approach is not just for the business world. A lot of people who attend our trainings do so for their own self-development or spiritual growth. Our certification program is one of only a handful of curricula accredited as a school by the International Enneagram Association. It is currently being conducted virtually and combines live sessions with asynchronous learning. Again, find out more at awarenesstoaction.com. Uh, briefly on Michael Mann. Um, Michael Kenneth Mann was born in 1943, an American director, screenwriter, and producer of film and television who is best known for his distinctive style of crime drama. His most acclaimed works include the films Thief, Manhunter, Last of the Mohicans, Heat, The Insider, Collateral, and Public Enemies. He is also known for his role as executive producer on the popular TV series Miami Vice, Uh, which he later adopted into a 2006 feature film. Born famously or, you know, notably born and raised in Chicago. There's a lot of Chicago in this guy, right? I mean, uh, when I, you know, you can hear it in his accent. You, a lot of his movies are filmed there, I think. It's just uh, the culture of Chicago seems to permeate who he is, right? He talks about being raised or, you know, growing up around a lot of cops and robbers, uh, and this influencing his interests. Okay, uh, I was I was surprised by how few films he had actually made, and his last film was in 2015. But he's extremely prolific as a uh, producer and writer, and as well as director. So again, we're going to talk about first the movie Thief, which was his first theatrical release movie. He made a TV movie. He had been, um, you know, working in television for a while, and then he was given the opportunity to direct a made-for-TV movie called The Jericho Mile, which was released, I believe, in 1979. And I actually remember watching on television when it uh, came out. See, TJ, that's the advantage of being old. I keep telling you is that you get to see these movies in real time. Did, did any of you guys see The Jericho Mile? I've seen part of it. It's it's very okay. atmospheric. 
<laughs> very atmospheric. If by atmosphere you mean Folsom State Penitentiary yeah. in California, yes, yeah. absolutely. TJ, did you get a chance to watch the the Jericho? I Mile? did not, unfortunately. No. Oh, okay. All right. So Jericho Miles about a guy um, played by Peter Strauss, who was hot in the late 70s for about five minutes. And he played an inmate who was doing a life sentence who spent his days running around a makeshift track in the prison. And then somebody realizes that he's running really, really fast. And so they try to arrange for him to run in a race because he's running a sub four minute mile. You know, so it was filmed in the prison. 28 speaking roles were done by inmates at the time who later went on to be advisors and character actors in a lot of his movies. So he has from early on an obsession with cops and robbers and criminals and you know those who go after them in his work. Jericho Mile was really well received. It won some Emmys, I believe, and it gave him the opportunity to direct the first movie we're going to talk about, 1981's Thief, starring James Caan, Tuesday Weld, and uh, a cameo by, or not cameo, supporting role by Willie Nelson, mm-hmm. and the first film role of Robert Prosky, which yep. I found was interesting. He was actually 50 years old at the time. So, uh, again, another movie that I saw in the theaters. Uh, apparently, there weren't that many of us because the film only made $11 million on a $5 million budget. Uh, TJ, tell us about the movie Thief. Give us a synopsis, yeah. please. Thief is the story of Frank, we never find out his last name, played by James Caan, a Chicago-based jewel thief who breaks into safes and vaults. He's helped by a small crew, including Barry, played by young Jim Belushi, whose specialty is disabling alarm systems. He has two fronts, two businesses, uh, a used car lot and a bar, both of which are successful, and he genuinely runs them. They're not just empty businesses. They seem to be thriving. He has a contact who sells his stolen goods for him, who wants to introduce him to someone higher up the criminal food chain, and Frank is not interested. This contact winds up dead before paying him for his most recent stash of diamonds. So he pursues the money he's owed and comes into contact with that higher-up guy named Leo, played by Robert Prosky. And he's a fence who wants to hire Frank and promises to provide him with high-paying jobs with substantial payouts, and Frank refuses. He's not interested in working for anybody but himself. Part of Frank's backstory is that he spent 16 years in prison and while there came under the tutelage of Okla, played by Willie Nelson, who was kind of a mentor and father figure to him and he visits him, he's still in prison, and tells him about this waitress he's been romancing, Jessie, plays by Tuesday Weld, who works at a diner that he frequents. He ends up taking her out to a restaurant and they have a long conversation where he lays out the truth about himself and his criminal life and his past and his desire to be with her and have a family. And despite her reluctance and her having been with a criminal before and not being allowed children, she agrees. Frank reaches out to Leo and agrees to work with him in order to get the money to set up a new life with Jesse. And then Leo arranges a house for them to live in. He secures the adoption of a baby boy when they get turned down by an adoption agency. They name their son David, which is Okla's real name, and Okla had just died of heart failure at this point. Frank and his crew go to do their first big job for Leo in California. It's a bank in a high-rise with a legendarily fortified safe that requires the development of new welding equipment to penetrate it, which they develop and they pull off the job and they score this huge cache of diamonds. When Frank goes to pick up the payoff from Leo, it's substantially less than he'd been promised. 
The rest is in the form of shares for a few shopping centers in different cities. Frank's not interested in this, demands the rest of his money in cash, refuses to work for Leo any further. This doesn't go too well. So Leo and his goons kidnap and beat Frank's assistant, Barry, and when Frank arrives, they knock him unconscious, kill Barry, revive Frank. Leo makes it clear that he has the deed on Frank's home and on his son and that Frank had better get in line and do the next job. And that's that. So Frank sends Jesse off with $400,000 in cash, cutting off the relationship for her safety, and blows up his own bar, sets the cars in his used car lot on fire. He then goes to Leo's home, breaks home, kills the associate who'd been guarding him in a firefight, and then kills Leo, takes a few bullets in the process, and then opens his shirt to reveal a bulletproof vest, and walks off into the night alone. Great, thank you. So, um, again, I remember seeing Thief. I was a senior in high school, saw it in the movie theater, and just being blown away by the movie, right? I mean, it's very stylistic. It was, uh, for the time, really cutting edge. And uh, I was wondering if, I, I was going to come in with a premise that Michael Mann created the 1980s. Okay, uh, with this movie and uh, with, you know, the idea of Tangerine Dream doing the soundtrack, you know, that sort of electronic music, the visuals, that sort of thing. But then it occurred to me that the Warriors 1979 uh, actually used similar sort of music. Right. So I can't quite give that credit to Michael Mann. But boy, oh boy, did he establish a look. Uh, in this film, right, that you can later see all over the TV series Miami Vice, which uh, at the time was huge. We start to see the themes again in 1986's Manhunter, another one of my all-time favorite movies, uh, which we'll, we'll touch on later. But, you know, where, do, where does one even start to talk about how eight-ish this movie is? Okay, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. Russ, why don't you take a stab at it first and uh, uh, tell us what, what was eight-ish about this movie Thief for you? Oh, my gosh, <laughs> everything. <laughs> you're just saying there were a lot of things. And as you're saying, Mario, it was pretty cutting edge for the time, the look of it. And while we might, you know, in the current time, seeing these kind of crime gadgets like these portable drills and things you know it was like well all right but back then nobody saw anything like that no one saw criminals doing these kind of high-tech things that they did to get the loot you know so that was already pretty cutting edge so that kind of boldness of vision trying something new the whole sensibility of that is pretty eight but i some things i already said this film has a very deliberate pace you know, looking at a, a, a similar kind of crime drama like we talked about with Scorsese, where is a six, and the energy is more sixish. It's more bouncing around. It's more kinetic. It's more, you know, you don't get that with Michael Mann. It's boom, 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 notes, beats, and you just go along with it. And there's crescendos and quiet parts, but there's a, a pulse to the movie. Uh, obviously, the James Conn character is a flaming eight, you know, his, his so many ways, probably was, is one in real life. But the, just his values, again, that sense of his own personal code of honor and his insistence on independence, even when it puts his life in jeopardy. You know, talking back to these big mob guys, talking back to the cops, 
it gets beat up by the cops at one point, just mouthing off to them. But it isn't just, he's not just reacting to them. That's the big difference. He's not reacting and rebelling. You're just not going to take me off of my thing, my independence, my plan. I've got my life planned out and you're not going to change me. You know, that resistance that we talk about in the eight, nine and one is there for him. Literally planning his life out by cutting pictures out of magazines and creating his ideal life that he was working toward on a piece of paper. Yes. And just the way he goes after Tuesday Weld. <laughs> I mean, a lot of us, a lot of guys would go after Tuesday Weld, quite understandable. Uh -huh. But he just says, uh -huh. look, honey, here's how it's going to be. We're going to have a relationship. <laughs> <laughs> and you're you're my gal and and she's the first resistant but he just conquers all of her resistance also his relationship the other big thing with eights is is loyalty and and as you were saying mario not wanting to have a lot of people in his world not depend on other people who's very suspicious to work with people he didn't know he had a very small tight crew that he pulled off these heists with but i also think in so many ways this film is a study i don't think michael mann is necessarily highly focused on theme over plot. I think he values plot over theme. However, there is a theme and the theme is about people living their personal code of honor. It's really as a study about James Caan finding a way to do that. And at the end, you just get the idea at the end. Yes, he walks away at the end, but he's lost everything. He's done his business. He's wrecked his relationship with the cops, with the mob. He's lost his girl. He's lost, burned down his house. Burned down his house. He got nothing. So you don't really get the idea he's stepping into some kind of rosy future. We don't know what's going to happen to him, but it's not too good. And again, this vengeance note comes in at the end. Like he takes it upon himself to settle the scores and to show the boss who's boss, you know. And in doing so, he succeeds. But I think man is also wanting us in both of these films to see it's a kind of a pyrrhic victory like he wins but it costs him everything so all these are kind of eight themes i mean i could if i sit and ponder it there more and more will come but i just <laughs> yeah. want to get the ball rolling for all of it so yeah. i hope that gotcha. you guys up the, yeah Go ahead, the, char the character arc for james Kahn and thief is really similar to the one for robert de niro in heat and they, you know, they wind up sort of the same way. I mean, uh, De Niro gets killed, but uh, he wrecks everything in the process. He also does that same thing with the woman that he meets. He's going to dominate her. She's going to be with him. And she's kind of 90 and kind of, uh, uh, you know, sort of boundaryless and out of sorts and... So she goes along with it until she figures out who he is and what he actually does. And then she's uh, kind of horrified. Uh, he does win her back, but it still has to do with a kind of aggression and a kind of dream of an alternate life, which he also refutes when he's talking with somebody else. I, I forget which character, where he's talking about his ability to just cut everything off and walk away. And, you know, that's, a, that's the same thing James Caan does. It reminded me a little of uh, John Wayne in a couple of movies, too, where he was 
the man who shot Liberty Valance. John Wayne gets so angry that he burns down his own house uh, just because he's uh, enraged, basically. And he's been rejected by a woman that, uh, that he loved, that he loved secretly, but of course he couldn't really expose how much he loved her because that would have made him vulnerable. Yeah, it wasn't exactly clear to me either, other than, you know, when he burns down his own house and burns down his both of his places of businesses because he had to, you know, there's a certain, I was trying to, there's different ways you can understand why he did that. You know, uh, one, it was to remove evidence of anything or any way to trace him. That would be a practical side. But, you know, Don Riso and I used to talk about how when eights are really driven by rage into the unhealthiest part of eight, there's a kind of scorched earth policy. You're not going to get anything I had. No one will have what I had. No one is going to win over me. You won't get my cars. You won't get my business. You won't get my house. Nobody. And so I think there was an element of that in his actions. too. I'm going to offer a less slightly less psychopathic uh, ex you know, um, explanation of why I think that happened. Yeah. If you remember the scene in the diner when mm -hmm. him and Tuesday Weld are on their date, he's telling the story of what happened to him in prison, Yes, uh, where he was attacked by these guys, you know, he fought them, he killed a couple of them, and, you know, etc. And he talked about going back out into the yard, and he said at this point he had given up everything and didn't care about anything. He didn't... Uh. Uh, he didn't care whether he lived or died. Nothing mattered. And that's the only way he survived for the next 11 years because he didn't care about anything. And so I think that basically he knew. So the scene where Robert Prosky, you know, reads Frank the rules, you know, and says, hey, look, pal, I own you. Okay, I am going to work you like a dog. If you go against me, I'm going to do horrible things to your wife. I'm going to do horrible things to your children or your child. He says, I'm going to work you like a dog. I'll pay you what I want to pay you. And when you're burned out, I'm going to get rid of you. Right. And so he knew at that point, okay, there's only one way out of this. Right. And that is to not care about anything. And the way to not care about anything is to destroy everything. Yeah. Right. So um, I, I think it was, you know, kind of a survival strategy. Yeah. A, you know, a, a disturbed one, but fitting with the character and what he had said earlier. Yeah. Well, and a survival um, strategy in in his understanding of the world. Yes, absolutely. Well, he was very self-prez, for one thing. <laughs> but he was uh, also kind of, you know, the uh, people. Sometimes people go to prison and they carry prison with them in their heads for the rest of their lives. Other people don't. But even before prison, you know, you could grow up in really tough circumstances where there's brutality or indifference, and you carry that forward in time, and you have a sort of back of the mind point of view about the the world around you it's not the real world it's your map of the world yeah. but in that map of the world you know it's uh, protecting yourself from danger and coming out on top and being the the top dog or at least surviving and surviving well becomes uh, a kind of imperative a kind of yeah. uh, you know ground zero in your motivations yeah. yeah, you got, well, he did mention 
talking when they were when he had to say, "Well, we're trying to adopt the child." His own childhood was as a ward of the state. Yes. He had been an yeah. orphan yeah. himself and been in awful foster care and and things like that. So he had this history. The other, the third way I also interpret the end of that is he's he's cleaning the slate. He's starting from scratch. In a sense, what was more poignant and powerful for me wasn't so much the destroying his homes. It was the picture. Yeah. When he destroyed the mm -hmm. picture, like it was kind of that rejection structure functioning. I will never have this. And I'm going to let go of that last dream. So we don't know. So it's, it's yeah. just all down to survival yeah. now in a way. Yeah. And I'll tell you what was interesting about the picture too, is that he just threw it out the window, right? He crumpled it up and threw it out the window as if he didn't even care enough about it anymore to bother to destroy it, yes. right? I mean, he was so indifferent to it. I'm not even going to rip this up or light it on fire. I'm just, it's just, it ceases to exist. To the dream of being together with Tuesday Weld and having a child represented a, a kind of metaphor that I've seen in eights a lot, where there's a kind of awareness of, I, I used to see it in workshops quite a bit. There'd be an, an eight one time came with his wife, and I could feel him kind of like a heat-seeking missile in the back of the room watching me closely and making sure that I was going to treat vulnerable people well and not abuse my power. And what it got me onto was a way in which eights can externalize. They'll externalize their inner dynamic and witness it in other people, but not quite realize that they're seeing something inside of themselves. Yeah, and I actually did a demonstration with his wife, and he, he really zeroed in then. because It was, how, how was I going to treat his wife? Um, sometimes you see eights with wives who are like nines or twos where their their boundaries are a little indefinite and their their self-presentation is not uh, powerful especially. But when I worked with her and I worked effectively and respectfully and humorously, I saw him relax. It was sort of like that kind of answered the question about how I, as a stand-in for his power, was going to treat the vulnerable in the workshop, and especially, in particular, his wife. But we were external stand-ins. Psychodrama is what I was reaching for, where you get a bunch of other people to act out your inner dynamics. TJ, tell us uh, your thoughts on Thief. Yeah, just to build on a couple of things that the rest of you have been saying, sense of it being a jungle out there, a couple of the elements that were prominent in the movie is that the system is corrupt. So when the cops beat him up, it's because he refuses to bribe them. So he's just driving along, gets pulled over by the cops, and the cop, played by the actual jewel thief who was a consultant on the film at the time, approaches him, friendly, as if I'm going to get a cut of all these jobs you're going to be doing for Leo, as if it's the most normal thing in the world. And it's, he's kind of surprised that Frank rebuffs him. And later the cops stop him on no pretense whatsoever and smash one of his taillights and bring him to the station and beat him up. He also arranges to get Okla out of prison by blatantly bribing a judge. We, you know, we've seen it at the hearing and the, the judge is putting fingers on yeah. his face to indicate how many thousands of dollars he wants for the bribe. And the lawyer is putting a different number of fingers up on his face and it's just like, 
that system isn't explained because you don't have to because it's pretty clear what's going on of like that might have been true for what Chicago was like at the time but it's very much an eightish vision of the world like this is where we're playing people are corrupt people abuse their power they try to control you that's just what it is so you're gonna have to fight to survive and then I thought about the ending and that again is a Darwinian animalistic view of the world and anybody who believes otherwise is deluding themselves yeah 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 and civilization is a thin veneer over our true bestial natures yeah and about the ending the comparison that came to mind is Samson pulling down the temple over his own head in the Old Testament Samson might have been an eight and that's his grand finale it just just bring this whole thing down. And that's a comparison that Robert McNamara uh, said about Fidel Castro in the documentary Fog of War. He said, years after the Cuban Missile Crisis, he met him and said, would you have really recommended that Khrushchev launch missiles against America, knowing that that would lead to the certain annihilation of Cuba? And Castro said, not only would I have said that, I did say that. Khrushchev didn't. And McNamara was just astounded. And I'm not sure if Castro is an eight, but it really fits into that same theme of like, if you're going to try and control me, well, fuck you. I'm going to blow up the whole game first. There's nothing left for you to destroy. Mm-hmm. His energy, his power is really grounded. So in the first scene where he meets the subordinate to Leo saying, you know, some of that money that disappeared when that guy died is mine. Even when he's holding a gun on him, he never raises his voice. He doesn't need to. And we'll see that in the cafe scene between De Niro and Pacino in Heat. But, like, I don't need to yell to convince you how powerful I am and that I'm a threat. He just owns it. It's just there. It's part of him. And most of his conversation with Tuesday Weld in the diner is like that, too. He raises his voice very rarely. And similarly, when he's sending her away, he wakes her up in the middle of the night He very calmly says, I'm giving you this amount of money. My associate is coming. I want you to leave. I don't know where you're going to go. You're going to pay him this much for the first month. He just says it very straight, factually. Might be some of the deadness inside, but he doesn't need to yell. Doesn't need to raise his voice. He doesn't need to thump his chest to prove that he's in charge. So I think that, you know, I agree with that. And I think there was a slight distinction in those two parts, right, where he's kind of sending Tuesday Weldoff or Jesse off, I think there was that deadness. You could just see the look in his face. Uh, There was no soul left in him, right, at this point. I think in other times, you're absolutely right, that speaking stilly and quietly and directly is a form of power, right? I don't need to yell. Okay, I will talk quietly. The other thing he did whenever he was exerting his power, he would not use contractions. I don't know if you noticed this or not. Something they talked about in the uh, commentary is that he would, you know, say, you will go here instead of you'll go here, that sort of thing. So it was, I am going to speak slowly and properly and clearly so I do not have to waste time and repeat myself and you will get my message. So fascinating in the way he did that. Michael Mann had James Caan and Jim Belushi and the other actors in the scenes actually learn how to break into a safe. They used the real tools. That wasn't simulated. They really did that. And I think that fits into the eight's action-oriented, practical nature. 
we're going to see this actually happen. How long does this take? What's involved? How much effort is involved? Yeah, and it's also another you know, eight value, as I understand, is realism, realness. And you know, if you're a movie director and you're trying to create realism, you you're not going to want to have a whole bunch of CGI. You, you want to have as much real stuff, real hardware, real people as you can in in the films. The and this and depends on what you're doing. There might be a little bit, but that focus on the realness. Like you should be able to taste the scenes. You know, you should be able to smell them. Are you interested in learning more about our approach to the Enneagram? Go to awarenesstoaction.com and check out our certification program. We offer a clear, concise, business-friendly, and science-minded approach while maintaining the depth of traditional approaches to the system. At Awareness to Action International, we're the leading innovators in the theory and pragmatic applications of this system to all aspects of the work environment, including leadership and personal development, team building, diversity and culture, and managing change. However, this approach is not just for the business world. A lot of people who attend our trainings do so for their own self-development or spiritual growth. Our certification program is one of only a handful of curricula accredited as a school by the International Enneagram Association. It's currently being conducted virtually and combines live sessions with asynchronous learning. Again, find out more at awarenesstoaction.com. Yeah, realism. And that's something they talked about, right? That we don't want fake tools, we want real tools. And talked about how uh, the audience can tell. And there was an interview I watched, and they were talking about uh, uh, the director who played the butler in Sunset Boulevard um, and how he wanted a real Leica camera instead of a prop. And he said, the audience will know. And it reminded me of every time I watch a TV show and there's a character drinking a um, takeout cup of coffee and you can tell it's empty, right? It just pulls you out of it because they're handling it like, well, it's going to pour all over you, right? So absolutely. And the other thing that struck me about this is how doing oriented the whole movie was. There's not a word of dialogue for the first 10 and a half minutes of the movie, other than yeah. some things coming over the police radio, right? Yeah. They don't say anything for the first 10 and a half movie. It is all the this uh, jewel heist that they're doing. Yeah. Okay? Beautifully done, gripping, engaging, but nobody says anything. Yeah. Okay? Um, and this, to me, brought up a theme of Michael Mann's movie. So I remember years ago thinking, How, what is it going on here? And I th thought the common theme with him was something around men at work. Right in a way, because mm -hmm. it's always men. There aren't any really significant female characters in most of his movies. They're kind of props, I hate to say it, but for the most part. And then I was watching an interview with him, and he said what he is drawn to is conflict. And then the thing that came to mind for me as I was watching these movies is that what Michael Mann's movies are almost all about is someone finding their identity in the pursuit of of something else or the conflict with something else. Yeah. And with Frank, it was that, you know, about the uh, pursuit of the, the crime and wanting to build this life and about doing in the world rather than sitting around thinking about it. Also, he plays with shadows a lot. Yeah, same word. Uh, just uh, I think De Niro and Pacino in the movie Heat are supposed to be reflections of each other. And it's yes. the same in uh, Manhunter, I think. 
the the yes. main characters a five, and the the weirdo serial killer is pretty much a five himself, but in a psychotic sort of way. And the 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 way in which the, the those are contrasted is pretty interesting, and seems to be an interest of his too. Yeah. There's also you know in in Heat, which we'll talk about a little later, De Niro gets killed because of his shadow. Yeah, right, right. It's like, it's like he's in the light. He's got the protection of the light, but then you know uh, Al Pacino sees his shadow, and then is able to kill him. That's that's a little those little details one enjoys, but the other yeah. thing, kind of like that, I see thematically through both movies, is a lot of images of processes on materials, and that can be as you know elaborate as some of the drilling scenes and things in Thief, like that heat cutting tool, and, and gosh, it's you. Very few modern directors are going to linger and have you watch a safe getting cut for however many minutes we're doing that in that film. Maybe David Lynch would, but not too many others. And, and similarly, in uh, the gun battle, it, it, in the, the toward the end of Heat, the huge gun battle on the street, there's mostly scenes of cars getting shot up, glass breaking bullet holes in the metal of the car. It's a very interesting thing. It's, it's some kind of signaling of the visceral reality of all these things we're seeing. Gutsy, right? It's, it's gut center. It's like, this is yeah. tangible. And, and yeah. he keeps coming back to images that give you the sense of the tangible realness of what's going on in the movie. That's a, yeah. a tendency I noticed also, where he's really focused on procedure, and in his bad yeah. movies, uh, Public Enemies, I would say, wasn't a very good movie. And Miami right. Vice is not a very good movie either. And they both heavily emphasize procedure in that sense. And they wind up being repetitive, if not a little confusing, too. You know, the Public Enemies, you saw one robbery after another, basically. And they were the same yet different. And yet there was a fascination with the details of it that he had, but didn't really come across in the film. Also, the overuse of yeah. music. You know, the, uh, yeah. uh, the intensity of his music really works in Manhunter, in Heat, in Thief, but he overdoes it. And in, in, it's in Public Enemies, it's in another one, oh, Miami Vice also, where it's just yeah. music, 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 but there's... There's not really a rationale for it, apart from just jazzing the proceedings up. When he does it well, it's brilliant. And mm -hmm. when it doesn't, it's not uh, it's collateral. It's Exactly. Yeah. Collateral is another movie where there's a great use of music, I think. Uh, yeah, really, that's really a very well good done. film. Um, yeah. Yes. And I, and I think Last of the Mohicans uses music really yeah. well. And speaking yeah, of does. process, th this is a thing that, you know, as we're talking, Something that strikes me as Michael Mann is his boldness as a director. The willingness to have the first ten and a half minutes of a movie where nobody says anything, right? And then in the middle of this caper movie to put this, I don't know, seven, eight, nine minute conversation between Jesse and Frank just to stop the action and talk for a while is, is gutsy. And and then I keep thinking, I, I rewatched Last of the Mohicans. And if there the is a better, 
final 20 minutes of a movie, I I don't know what it is. I mean, that just, you know, it is seamless, you know, intense, absorbing, and draws you in. And and man has a real gift for that. Yeah, it's amazingly cinematic, the last part of that film. Yes. Uh, So a couple of uh, particularly eight-ish scenes for me, just to come to a uh, close on Thief. When he goes to visit Ataglia, at the LNA plating company uh, to get his money. And, you know, I am the last guy in the world that you want to fuck with, you know, is, yeah. uh, you know, one of the great all time eight lines. Uh, when he tells um, uh, Leo, no disrespect, but if you want to make friends, join the Lonely Hearts Club, you know, uh, that, that sort of thing. And the date, very eightish dating styles in both of these movies, uh, you know, kind of cavemanish uh, in, in a lot of ways. Kid, kidnappings. Um, basically, right? And um, also, too, it was interesting. I was watching Thief with my wife yesterday. She had never seen it before. And they're at the scene where they f- they do the bank robbery at the Bank of California. And I don't know if you noticed this, but after he drills through the box and they start getting the money out, Frank sits down, lights up a cigarette. Yeah. Right. Now, I don't think he had smoked in the rest of this movie, but this was a very clearly post-coital reference, you know, where for Frank, you know, breaking into a safe is probably just as good as sex, right? So uh, He had bedroom hair also. (laughs) That's right. And this kind of, uh, you know, exhausted look of happiness and contentment on his face, Mm -hmm. right? And then there's the kind of false ending, you know, where they're at the beach, and yeah. the Michael Mann signature of P- of water, right? Yeah. People looking at water or water in the background. And my wife says, no, it can't end here, right? Uh, you know, because he has to end unhappily. And we know that that's sort of happening. So, so for me, it was the honesty of Michael Mann to not want, to not feel like he had to give a happy ending yeah. uh, for the movie. Right? He did so. not cheese out, as we used to right. say. He doesn't pander very much. No, not at all. <laughs> not at all. You've been listening to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast, which is produced and edited by Seth Creekmore and is part of the Awareness to Action podcast network. Don't forget to go online and support the podcast by taking a moment to rate, review, and subscribe. See you next time.